Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. You fellas here to uh, drink or play? Well, my partner here is the player, and uh, I guess I'm the drinker. Huey? He calls. Player. Next up. You're low. That's what I'm got. Right. Start with the, uh, the ball guy, the most dangerous player in the game. Absolutely right. Percentage player doesn't take many chances, right? Uh, no flair. Guy, I say, is part of a two or three man combination. No sweat, but you find him after the fourth card, you're not in the hand unless you got the nuts, right? right. Oh, cowboy. I don't know. Lyndon Johnson's definitely is here. I figure uh, he owns a piece of the town. Haberdashery. Right? It's like he sells cowboy hats. That's right. It's his rhythm. Absolutely right. But with your natural ability and your strength, you don't have to let him have much of that. Keep talking. Keep right. talking. Okay. Kid, seen the Cincinnati kid too many times, right? I mean, he's been trying to beat this game before he's born, right? Get him off the specs. It's a, it's a doctor, right? It's a doctor has been here playing this game forever, right? He'd rather lose a patient than a hand. Very good. Not much of a problem. You don't want to get involved too much. Red coat. Red coat. Well, my call is small time booster, right? That's your chair, right? One time buy-in, he used to be a cha-cha dancer. I don't know. I don't know, but that's, that guy has fallen out, and that's where you're going to be sitting. Hey everybody, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. Now you probably know that the premise of the show is that Mike and I have known each other a long time. We talk about a lot of things because we're friends, but for the podcast, we watch movies separately and then have a conversation here for the first time. And we don't know what the other guy's gonna say. These are not scripted. The structure is always the same. In part one, we always talk about our big takeaways. Part two is our favorite moment. And part three is the ending or the title. So in part one, I wanna start, Mike, what movie are we doing today? We are doing California Split by Robert Altman. 1974, great movie. So I discovered this on Criterion about a year ago. I, I initially texted Mike about 100 times. You've got to see this because, Mike, you're the guy. You're the guy that turned me on to The Long Goodbye. That's true. And we did an episode on that. So when I saw it, I'm like, we have to do it. Mike hadn't seen this, so Mike rewatched it a couple of days ago. I rewatched it. So part one, we always talk about our overall take. And, Mike, I want to start by, by my, my overall take is more not a take but a question, and here it is. You have MASH, you have The Long Goodbye, you have California Split. Elliot Gould is absolutely the coolest. He is so great in these movies, right? How would you describe what's cool about Elliot Gould? There's something unmoved about him that he moves through a crowd and the crowd moves past him, but somehow he's not moving the same way 
that that they're moving. Everybody, uh, you know, if you go back to say the the scene in the track, or you go back to even the long goodbye, he's strolling. Other people are walking. That they're walking with some kind of determination and purpose, and he seems totally untouched by that, and also able to make fun of them or to comment on it. Right? Uh, there's a famous scene in this movie that we'll talk about later where he reads. He literally reads the room, and. It seems like Elliot Gould, especially when he's paired with Robert Altman, he's got the drop on everybody, but he's he's not touched. He's somehow immune to quotidian life, but he's always in scenes where everybody is about their quotidian business, but he's not about any business except reading their business. And nobody that talks, I mean, he doesn't stop talking ever in those three movies, especially this one. This one, he probably talks the most, right? But like, but of course, to be cool, you're not supposed to talk a lot. You know, you think about Lee Marvin, you think about John Wayne, you think about people that we were raised on. These are cool people. He does not shut up for five seconds, but he still outcools everybody. Because it's because it's funny. And I think that there's there Robert Altman has a way of drifting, right? If you watched if, if somebody was raised only on Hollywood movies and you said, I want to watch this art movie with you, it's by Robert Altman, probably 90% of the time that person's going to turn to you and say, what's going on here? Yeah. Because I feel like I feel like we're just drifting. I don't feel the, the purpose, right? It, again, if you were in a screenwriting class, people would say, well, what's at stake? And Robert Altman will spring it on you, but he won't build to it. It comes very suddenly. And so I, I think that Elliot Gould is his muse in that way he's able he's able to drift on top of these on top of these rhythms that seem very unplanned although of course they're meticulously planned but also the feeling of watching one of these great Altman movies is that the drift is the fun of it, right? So it's not like I, I told you, I'm like, I recently saw The Sting. The Sting is used in a lot of screenwriting classes. Why? Because it's like every scene builds to the next one. And what do you want to get accomplished? And, and what are you going to reveal here? And that and that's, you know, the, the Sting screenplay is unbelievable. But this one, you totally get the sense that the movie's made up as it goes along. You get the sense that it's all improvised. And Elliot Gould helps in that. This is going to blow your mind. Do you know who the first choice was for the Elliot Gould part? I don't know, but it's difficult to imagine anybody else. Think of how movie the movie would have been different. The first choice was Steve McQueen. He's he's too cool. Yeah, he's right. he's too cool. You can't you can't drift because one of the things that yeah, I think Steve that McQueen separate, does not drift. Yeah, Steve McQueen doesn't drift. He uh, Steve McQueen is remote in right. a way that Elliot Gould right. is not. Elliot Gould lets you know what's on his mind. In fact, he feels very familiar. That's that's the thrill of the long goodbye. I enjoy the long goodbye because I know some of those long takes by heart. And they're very much about how at home Elliot Gould is in his locale. And he makes me feel at home in that locale. Who the hell knows what Steve McQueen is thinking? You know, right. I mean, think think of just a random Steve McQueen scene from, say, The Great Escape, where he's bouncing the ball against the wall. What's he actually thinking about? I have no idea. Okay, so let's get into your overall take. And the way I want to frame this is Mike texted me when it was over. Well, you obviously know what Disney movie this whole thing is a is a takeoff of, right? And I said... Well, it's not Dumbo because like they mentioned Dumbo and Mike said, no, it's not Dumbo. Right. And I said, well, it's not Snow White and the Seven Dwarves because there's that bit right in the beginning at the bar. And Mike said, no, it's not that either. And then I, I said, don't tell me, save it for the pod. And Mike's like, all right, so we're on the pod, Mike, we're recording now. Spring it on me. What movie is it? Well, let's put it this way. So again, I, I think that the Disney clues are dropped in there because the structure of this movie is a very famous structure. Uh, and and that's what makes the movie work. It's it's hung on something that already works. Okay, so I'll I'll frame it to you this way: a mysterious, carefree stranger flits into your life, 
seemingly unexpected. And you can follow him back to the place where he's from. And he's going to try to convince you to stay there because it's paradise. There's no responsibilities there. He'll come, he'll come into your work and carry you away. He'll drop in when you least expect it. If you go looking for him there, you can't find him. But when you least expect it, he pops up on you and he plays a prank and he says, do you want to come play? Are you referring to Peter Pan? He is Peter Pan. The Actually, the entire movie is Peter Pan. And and until and then you you give it all away and you say, I can't stay here anymore. And you follow him to where he lives and you you beat the villain. Right. You you have the you you win the entire kingdom. And he says, OK, well, what are we going to do next? And you say, I have to go. I can't I can't stay here. Right. That's why that I have to grow up because he's an because he's an adult child. Right. What, what remember when they get back, when they're sprung out of jail and they sit down at, at the table? Do you remember what their breakfast is? Oh, they're, uh, they're Fruit Loops. It's Fruit Loops and beer and, beer and, a and cool. Yeah. And that's 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 what they like. Right. It's it's all it's nothing. It's no long term thinking. It's only what what are the things that my body craves or would or would fill this one void, you know, for 30 seconds. Right. You everybody knows that Fruit Loops and a cool and a beer uh, sh shouldn't work and isn't good for you. But at the same time, all part of this complete breakfast. But when you see it on the screen, what do you want? <laughs> well, that's like, so let's push that. That's hilarious, Mike. So let's push this even further. Two things you reminded me of. If these are like the, the adult children, um, what does George Siegel give the prostitute as a present? A giant stuffed animal. <laughs> and of course, Elliot Gould with the mariachi hat. The mariachi hat is exactly it, right? I, when you think things are darkest, he creeps into your bower and then you, and you fly and you, you make this getaway, right? You literally fly away. And he plays that prank at him because remember, he knocks on the door and says, where's my money? And then George Siegel remembers like, no, no, uh, he said, we're all good. Like, talk to him first. And then you're like, oh, my God, there's loan sharks after him. And it was really just Elliot Gould messing around with him. He's so cool. He's like the man who lost his shadow. He just he doesn't grow up. And everybody else in this movie has cares, responsibilities, worries. Right. He lives he lives with the lost girls. Yep. Right. In, in his in his mysterious land. The, so the entire structure of this, and I think that that's why they talk about Disney movies. That's why um, when they're when they're absolutely stumbling drunk, you know, he bets him a dollar that he can't name all seven dwarves. Right. Because there's something infantilizing about being in the presence of Elliot Gould in this movie. And he's kind of he's the charm that makes this work. That's why it wouldn't work with Steve McQueen. That's awesome because you cannot, that's awesome because you can't imagine Elliot Gould's day job. He doesn't have one, right? George Siegel has a job. He has Jeff Goldblum, remember, as his his annoying boss. He has somebody saying, you have to get this story and have this deadline. And he's trying to hold it together because he has responsibilities, but he's latched onto the, like, the endorphin rush of gambling. But Elliot Gould, like, is that rush. As, when, especially when he springs him from work, he's like at the, on the third floor. You know, he, he, you have to climb all the way up right to that top bedroom, which is where Peter Pan springs you from. And so I think that one of the things that Altman does really well as a director um, and the screenwriter, of course, too, is, is finds that find structures that work and then loosen everything up so that you get a kind of differentiated feel, right? This, this movie is just as much about its locale as is the long goodbye, as is a, the vibe of the seventies, the vibe of a certain kind of scene, that's really what the movie is about. And because you know that you've hung everything on a structure that works, you don't have to worry about it that much. As long as you stick true to the Peter Pan story, the movie's going to work. 
that makes the bald guy in the beginning kind of like Captain Hook, the guy that accuses them of cheating because he says the Joker hit the ground and then and then they he, they take his money and then he finds him later in the bathroom and beats him up in the bathroom right. at the track. He's Captain Hook. They have a they have a fight with a bald guy with an enormous mustache. So welcome back to part two. We talk about our favorite moments and maybe these moments will have to do with the Peter Pan theory that Mike had just advanced to part one, which I think is awesome. But Mike, I just want to point out, this is the second movie we've done that you have compared to Peter Pan. Do you remember the first one? I don't. Lawrence of Arabia. That's also Peter Pan. Because there's a part with the shadows dancing on top of the trains. And I remember you had a whole Peter Pan theory about that as well. Anything else about Peter Pan before we move on? Well, and the the connection between Lawrence of Arabia and this one is if you, if you think about why he wins in California Split, um, it's because he believes, right? How can you fly in Peter Pan? That's right? my you moment. Get, you yeah. get special powers when you believe. Okay, so what's, what actually is your moment? So my moment is when, you know, this, mo- this movie is a great portrait of a friendship and how the friendship starts and how it's sustained and what sustains it, kind of how it fades. And they go all throughs up and downs together. The thing I want to talk about in part two is that when they get to Reno and, and they're convinced they're going to start winning, Elliot Gould says that gambling is conviction and control. Because that's what it is. He keeps saying it's conviction and control. And of course, that's what the movie's about is them trying to get those two things, right? So when George Siegel has to see... Um, uh, spark his loan shark and they're in the restaurant remember he has his sunglasses on and he's like oh, humiliated right he's hiding behind his shades he has no conviction because he's just lying and it's so obviously lying and he has no control like his that's the, his life is spiraling out of control but when he gets on the bus to reno after he sells everything he's like i'm gonna win i'm gonna win and elliot gould's like all right great he has conviction and he does have control and then once he gets the jinx, it seems, of Elliot Gould away, that, remember, he's like, you won't give him money. You can't be in the room with me. He, he doesn't want to see him. Then all of a sudden, he wins $82,000. So I think the, the movie dramatizes those two things people want in a very controlled way, in a way that people understand, which is poker. But that's kind of like what your life is, right? You want, you want to have conviction and control. And sometimes your conviction's up, but your control's way down. And sometimes well, the, it's flipped. Their bond is strengthened by failure it's act, it's a bond of failure yes. right because they be, they first become friends because they win the money he's he's got the money and then they get jumped together and then they get in they get put in jail together and then they get sprung together and then they lose together right and they, right they win all the money on the horse race and they go out and they get robbed and the guy go half half is like come on man half is all i got he's not again he's not like super tough but he like he cannot shut up even when being robbed and convinces the guy to take half of it. And so it's it's a friendship that's based on failure. That's why when he's got the eighty two thousand dollars, you remember George Segal, he starts to cry. He can't help it because on the one hand, that's what you feel like you've been chasing, but on the other hand, everything between them is dissolved because he's gotten back to some kind of normalcy or real life. Like literally, he can buy it back, but he can't buy it back if they're going to go to Vegas after this, right? It, it's it's time to go home. Peter Pan says, we can go to the track now for 20 years. Like we're, like we're done. Like, like we can do this forever. We could do this forever. We can do this forever. And you would think that the high of, of winning would make him feel that way, but we'll, we'll save it for the ending. What was your moment? Right before George Segal's character gets drawn into the final game where he starts to win, he and Elliot Gould sit down in the bar and they start to scope it out. And and again, I don't want to push Never Neverland too hard, but do you remember what Elliot Gould says when they walk in the room and they see the guys playing and there's a bar with one lone barmaid there? No. He says, it must be heaven. 
So they sit down and they start to look at the table and Elliot Gould starts to read the table. He says, uh, you know, this guy, uh, he doesn't take chances, right? He's not getting in the hand unless he's got the nuts. Uh, this guy, you know, he's been trying to beat this game since before he was born. He's probably like in a high paying profession. He's a doctor or a lawyer or something, right? And he goes through each person, he pointing out who's dangerous, who's not dangerous, how to read cards by involvement. If this guy's in, that means you're out because he doesn't take chances. He's got pocket something. And there's just something it's it's like all the actual poker that takes place, right? This this would be sold as a poker movie. It's not really a poker movie. There's a really lame video that you watch that Elliot Gould seems to be making fun of when he's standing. That's for the audience, how to play poker. Right. How to play poker. What's the poker scene like in the 1970s? How do these games work? And it's just as hokey as the room that they're in. But when they get down to the real room, where the real gamblers are, uh, this this movie saves all of the actual poker knowledge, all of the real thing that the subject is about, for about those two minutes, when Elliot Gould reads the reads the table, and I think that it's almost it's almost structured like a joke in this movie because it's a poker movie that's not really about poker in the way that Jaws is not really about a shark, except that this movie is really in fascinated uh, in in poker and. There's something between poker and screenwriting or poker and movie making that they're they're reading characters based on how they're interacting. It's it's sort of like filmic analysis, like almost like what we're doing right now. And it's some sort of in-joke, I feel like, between the screenwriters or the people that made the movie. But it's like everything that's actually about poker is condensed into 90 seconds. Once you've totally forgotten, the poker's just a MacGuffin. Then they go, well, it's not just a MacGuffin. Here's something super interesting. Anyway, and then the movie's over by the time you have you know, time to process that. And if you watch a clip, it takes about three minutes, but it's one of the best scenes in the entire movie. Other movies love poker. This movie loves poker players. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's funny when he's going around the table and making fun of the people, he says about the one guy, like his hero was Lyndon Johnson. And he says to another, he says about another guy, he goes, yeah, you know, this guy's watched the Cincinnati kid a million times, which of course is funny because that movie is Steve McQueen as the ultimate poker player. What doesn't this movie have? You just reminded me of in a poker movie. What is supposed to happen? I don't know, like an hour and 20 minutes into it. The big game, right? So he gets to the big game, but you're supposed to see what everybody has. You're supposed to see who puts in what chips. So to bring it back in, it's so funny. This is coming up again. I told you, I just rewatched The Sting. So there's the part on the train where Paul Newman has to play cards against Robert Shaw. And there's the whole thing. And you get to see what cards Robert Shaw has, what cards Paul Newman has, who's betting, who's calling. We And we love that. Like, this isn't to say one's better than the other. Like, we love those scenes in movies. You get to see what your guy has. And then they reveal the cards. And he says, like, you know, four twos. And he's like, four jacks. You're like, oh, wow, it's amazing. This movie, you don't get that because it's really about the human beings. Yeah, this this movie is not Casino Royale. In fact, the while the Casino Royale scene is going on, the actual joke is Elliot Gould has to kill time. Right. Um, and then when George Siegel comes out of the room, uh, he asks him for like a dollar so he can buy himself a Coke or something because he, he can't even get into anything. He gave him all the money. Well, he won't give it to him because they, he's gonna, you're going to ruin it. Like, and that's what like gamblers start to believe their own superstitions. So he just doesn't even want to talk to him at first. He's like, get out of the room. And he's like, I can't be with you. Go away. And then, of course, it works. So that's the kind of like that's the kind of like gamblers logic we see at work there. Well, it's 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 really it's Wiley Coyote logic, which is Peter Pan logic. It's like you can fly, you can walk on the air as long as you don't look down.
Welcome back. So in part three, of course, we always talk about the title or the ending or the key takeaways. Dan, what do you got? So the ending of this we've touched upon earlier about what it's like to leave, leave Never Neverland. And I think that it's interesting at the end when it's all over and they get the money. George Siegel says there was no special feeling. There was no, that's exactly what he says. There was no special feeling and he has to go home. And I just read a book this week, ironically called Double Down. And it's about um, two college professors, Frederick and Stephen Barthelme. They were the brothers of Donald Barthelme, a writer that everybody knows. But Frederick Barthelme, I think, is a great novelist in his own right. These are two guys, true story, who went through their parents' inheritance and spent it in Mississippi on, on the in the casinos on the Gulf. And they went through $250,000 in a very short amount of time. And the book is about them doing that and going through all this money. And one of the chapters is so well done, and it reminds me so much of this movie, where they talk about how you don't really play to win, you play to chase a feeling. And I just want to read you something really quick and get your reaction to it. You ready? Here it is. It says, gambling is not unlike the rule, it's better to give than to receive. It's as good to lose as it is to win. There's only a shadow of difference between them, and that shadow is insignificant. Winning is better than losing, but neither one is the goal of gambling, which is playing. Losing never feels like the worst part of gambling quitting often does and i think that's dramatized beautifully in this movie is that yeah winning is better but neither one's the goal the goal is playing and elliot gould wants him to play forever but george eagle says well I, you know there's no special feeling so what do you make of that it reminds me of um you know how they get greyhounds to race with the electric rabbit yeah and occasionally a dog will catch the rabbit and they won't race anymore and that's really that's what happens at the end of this movie uh, is that he he has to leave because there, there's got to be something else other than this because it doesn't get any better than paying back your bookie and making the 82000 and literally crying into a pile of money and chips. So what do you make of the ending? Well, of course, the sad part of the ending is it, you would think th there's no like, hey, listen, I'm going to stop doing this, but we can still be friends. There's no Casablanca ending. This is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This is This is the ending of a beautiful friendship. Um, or or some kind of tortured friendship because they they again they bonded through failure and Elliot Gould is clearly he's looking for a partner in failure. What he wants is for somebody to joke with instead of to joke about, right? Because that's what we get at the beginning of the movie. He's walking around the room, he's making fun of everybody, he's getting into scrapes, but he finds he finds a friend and you get the charming bar scene again to hi to highlight the innocence of that scene. They they make that bet about uh you know naming all seven dwarves. And then they go home and they eat the Fruit Loops, and it seems like it seems like literally a childhood best friend movie, and that's that's what this is intended to be. But then everything is absolutely torn apart. And so how can the question of this movie or the drama of this movie seems to be how can you make a right decision seem like a wrong decision, or how can you make a wrong decision that seems like a right decision? And of course, tearing somebody away from the person who's their best friend and confidant is not a happy way to end a movie, but it's a necessary way to end a movie. And I think that uh, there, there's, imagine if you ended this movie any other way, imagine if you won the 82,000 and it was a freeze frame, you know, yeah. with, with, with the two of them, this wouldn't be a movie. It wouldn't be a movie. The, the redeeming quality of the movie is the necessity that you, you can't stay there gambling. You got to take the money and run. Right. He actually he he knows when to fold them, but you can't stay friends with the people that are it that are there. Right. It, so to say goodbye to Neverland and to grow up means to never see Peter again.
it's like it's like summer camp is over and you hope that you could hang out that's exactly what it's like but you have to go back to school and and school is still waiting for you but of course school's not waiting for elliot gould because you're right at the end if they if they went on the pro circuit it wouldn't work and if they both lost everything it wouldn't work because but the ending you know what's great about the ending of this movie is that like it feels like life like it's not a like a total buzzkill ending but it's not the ending of rocky or something it's kind of like yeah like these things happen and, and that's that's what it means to be a person right he's got to go back up into the tower and the tower is not that bad right, right. and jeff goldblum is there that's which is nice. He's he's got uh, two seconds of this movie, but it's a totally great cameo. But you have to go back to work eventually, and so this this movie I think dramatizes the break very nicely. Right again, you you could it could seem to somebody that the structure of this movie is very sloppy, but it begins right when they meet, and it encompasses the entire length of their friendship and so it's it's structured by friendship which value which which highlights the importance of that friendship but when it's over so is this movie because our characters don't really survive filmically without one another thanks for listening everybody we hope you enjoyed our conversation about california split and its deep deep relation to the structure of peter pan which i am totally convinced upon and i'm so glad you sprung that on me mike you could follow us on twitter at one five min film you could follow us where else mike letterboxd letterboxd if you have not seen california split in a while mike what should people do today if they have not seen it in a while just get criterion sit down and put it on thanks for listening everybody we'll see you next time